Welcome to episode 299. 299. Of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Oh man, we're getting close, Brian. The penultimate episode of the 200s. Actually, the ultimate episode of the 200s. Yeah. Yes, this is the, the penultimate. The, the one before the three starts. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost episode 300. That's pretty buck wild i don't know i i guess it's all arbitrary milestones but it's it's a big round number so yeah we humans like our big round numbers with zeros in them the more accurate milestone would be whatever 52 times 6 is which i guess is going to be 512 i'll trust you no 312 312 because you know 52 episodes a year so anyways whatever we're almost to 300 this is episode 299 it's not even accurate because you guys did like two episodes a week for the first couple years right Oh, you're right, you're right. Okay, well, let's just live live and die by the... <laughs> by the hundreds. Hundreds. Hundreds and fifties are, we'll call those nice round numbers. Sure. We've got a good episode coming up. We've got some more listener questions to get into, a little bit of follow-up, and then, of course, cool things at the end. Before we get into that, of course, we've got to thank our sponsor, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Yes, thank you to Abstract for sponsoring this episode. Abstract is the design workflow management system for modern design teams. So today, designers spend a ton of time searching for files and consolidating feedback from a bunch of different sources, and you never really know what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. And that is why Abstract exists. It's like GitHub, but for designers, it's your team's version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work. It brings the entire design workflow into a single, unified place for designers, developers, stakeholders to collaborate and keep your work moving forward. It's end-to-end collaboration, everything from versioning design files and storing them to requesting reviews, collecting feedback, presenting work. And then when things are ready to be built, you can hand off the spec directly to development. All of this is on Abstract, a platform that works both on and offline. In just the last couple of years, Abstract has acquired over 100,000 users. That's people from companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp and thousands of other companies you've also heard of across 75 different countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers and developers and product managers become more intertwined, The team at Abstract believes that a more collaborative and open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. Today, Abstract seamlessly integrates with Sketch, the design tool of choice for many of you out there, and they're going to continue rolling out support for more design tools and file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. One thing that's particularly exciting that I saw this week was Kevin Gutowski, friend of the pod, is building his own miniature app on top of the Go Abstract API, or I guess it's just Abstract. On top of the Abstract API, I, I was looking at his tweet, um, and the handle is Go Abstract. But Kevin built an application that takes each project within your Abstract team and creates a page where the assets for that file are accessible as download links in aggregate. So instead of someone from marketing saying, hey, can I get this asset for this icon from this file? They can just click on the file and see a list of all assets that are used in that file and download them in one click. Smart. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. So all of that and more is possible on the the abstract API. It seems like there's a lot of interesting tinkering being done there. So good work, Kev, and good work to abstract for making that possible. So go learn more. They're at abstract.com. If you sign up today, you're going to get a 30-day free trial for you and your team. That's a 30-day free trial at abstract.com. Thank you so much to abstract. Thanks, abstract. All right. Marshall, we got a little bit of follow-up this week. So last week, we talked about designing a design boot camp. We did. And uh, we got great feedback. So a couple people, actually, we got a flood of DMs this week. 
partially partially because of the the dribble giveaway, but partially just people from from last week's episode. So yeah, one piece of feedback that we got was from an anonymous direct message, but I will say it's from a professor of user experience and user interface design. Uh, and this professor wanted to just add on the way that she's found helpful to assign example projects to students. Uh, what she found was that students were designing stuff that was basically for people like them, which isn't particularly useful. <laughs> it's very tempting to do. Uh-huh. I think I called that out even in my in my thing is like give them a list of things to to go off of. Don't let them choose their own. Like give them a finite list. So this professor found that. Uh, what what she does is creates two types of projects. So the first one is, I think what you're saying, Marshall, is like, here's a project that is designed for a group that is not you. And one way that she found useful was to make it designing for another major at the university. So for example, we're going to design an app for all the nursing students at the school, which I thought was cool. Yeah, that's smart. And then the second type of project, uh, she said, they have to design with accessibility in mind so that when they test, they have to detest for a variety of disabilities uh, usually simulated, but even just small, tiny hacks like turning the phone's brightness all the way down to simulate vision issues can help build empathy for people that might not be able to experience your app in the same way. So good feedback on that. Do you use uh, Scala Preview? I don't. It's uh, made by a guy named Mark Edwards. He does the Bajango site. Yeah, he's been on the podcast. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mark made this thing called Scala. It's a, it's it's kind of like a sketch mirror, but it allows you to preview. And it has uh, on the bottom toolbar, it has a little glasses icon that when you tap on it, it lets you preview your mocks with certain vision impairments. Oh. So you can have like tritonopia or like basically blurry or you only see blues or you only see blues and yellows or you only see like reds and blues. It's really interesting, especially if you're making an app that has a lot of color in it. Like, oh, yeah. will these colors read for people who are colorblind of any number of different types? Because it's not just one way of being colorblind. There's several different different ways. So, Or does it work when their eyesight is just blurry in general? That's its own thing. So yeah, that's a really useful app for this type of thing. Uh, if you're looking to increase the accessibility of your app, uh, Scala Preview is great. Wow, yeah. I should be using that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's, I, I, that's my go-to previewer for phone mocks, for sure. Okay. It's got a little plug-in. You hit, uh, you hit a keyboard shortcut and sketch in it. It'll do it automatically, but I have it uh, manual. Sketch, no. Oh, yeah, it's sketch, Fuck. sorry. I think you can, uh, you can import images into it, too. Okay. Yeah, so you can, pull, you can pull from photos or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, great cool thing before we even got to cool things. Yeah, sorry. I, just, I wanted to yeah, no, put that good. in there while we're talking about eyesight accessibility. Yeah. Uh, we also got a DM from somebody who is a student in said class. So the, the professor or instructor who sent us last week's topic, one of their students DM'd and said that the, the class listened and appreciated the feedback. So that was cool. And then the original instructor also followed up this week sending along an outline based on the conversation we had last week. I think, you know, he has his own system and and own requirements, but it looks like some of the feedback was incorporated. So I don't know if there's any way I could share this, but he forwarded along an outline of what that design curriculum looks like. And it looks great. So, yeah. So, uh, Real change in the world, Marshall. (laughs) We're changing lives, Brian. (laughs) One design curriculum. At a time. <laughs> At a time. I think that's it for follow-up. Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone, for the, the DMs. We we love yeah. reading feedback about the episodes, and we're not always able to reply just because I feel like 
we're getting more and more each week, but uh, we are reading them. They are so fun to read and we're, we're doing our best. So thanks for those messages and tweets. Always appreciated. Much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, so we got some more uh, listener questions that we can answer today, Brian. Yeah, listener questions and then existential topics. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's start with listener questions. I've got a really, really good one for you, Marshall, and it's specific for you. This comes from listener Q, who sent me an email on Wednesday, so the day the last episode came out. And it's a fairly long email, so I'm going to try and paraphrase it and hit hit the main point of the question, okay? So Q is trying to figure out how to balance designing and managing. Specifically, how do you manage to do both effectively at a company like Google? And Q wants to know your journey specifically, Marshall, to create this sort of unique role for yourself where you're able to do both. Q says, I'm looking for a bit of advice on how to stay really close to the work while at the same time having a wider impact within an organization. And most importantly, maintain that sweet, sweet work-life balance. (laughs) This is a fantastic question, Q, and I wonder this myself from Marshall, how the hell he does it all. So Marshall, over to you. How do you manage, design, and still have a life and keep all these balls in the air? I would I would say having a life is a debatable <laughs> aspect of this question. You have a life in December. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a life at home. I just choose to do very little with my with my free time that I have because that's that's the whole point is to just fucking chill when I when I can. Oh god. So, well here, I can help with specifics if if it would be helpful to narrow this down. Okay. How did you even know that you wanted to do both? Did you ever face an inflection point in your career where it was either IC or management? I guess specifically at YouTube, like, did you ever have to make that choice? No, uh, no. Luckily, I was never made to make that choice. Although that is something my my role is not unique. Like, I'm not the only manager who makes mocks, right? Like, that's not unique to me. But it is rarer than the alternative, which is just an IC or just a manager, just a right, people right. manager. And I don't know. So part of it is I work a lot. I work a lot of hours. I work a lot of, uh, at home. Not just on my work from home day, but I also I, I spend nights and sometimes weekends working on stuff, and you know, sacrifice a lot of my home time, especially like at night after my fiance falls asleep on the couch. That's that's when I get a lot of work done. But also, I bisect my week pretty cleanly into like management lead days and I see creator days. That's usually like Monday through Wednesday-ish, and then Wednesday-ish through Friday. Uh, the first part of the week is management, plus the second part of the week is IC. Okay. Which helps me keep my sanity if I were going back. Okay, so part of this is like the whole thing of like a flow state, which is a real thing, and I need about 20 minutes, half an hour to like get into that zone of like I'm working and everything's going fine. I'm like doing work at my most efficient pace. But when you have a meeting every half an hour or you only have like a little time between your meetings, it's not even worth it to sit down at your computer and try to get any work done because it's not going to be efficient and you're just going to waste time you could be using to check email or respond to other people, the management stuff. So that's part of the reason why I I split it up to, to keep myself sane and also to just be efficient with my time. Do you know what I'm talking about with the flow state? Does that make sense to you? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Except for me, it's more like I need a three-hour block where I know nothing's coming up before I even want to start doing something. 
Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I need way more than 30 minutes cleared. I need multiple hours. I, I need a half hour runway, right? Just yeah, to get yeah. flying. Right? Yeah. And then you want to work for a couple hours in that zone. Exactly. Then I want to take advantage of that zone. Right. So I, I need, if I'm going to work for an hour, I need an hour and a half off. Right. Mm-hmm. And then chances are I'm probably going to need two hours because the last 15, 20 minutes of that is going to be preparing for the next meeting or like wrapping things up so that when I start this file again, I know exactly where I left off and what I need to do. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the short, the short answer is my work-life balance isn't that great. And I work a lot of extra hours. Luckily, it's all on stuff that I love doing. And I'm really excited about all of the projects that I'm working on. So it's, it's less like that I'm working and slogging away at home of just like nine o'clock rolls around and the fiance passes out watching whatever <laughs> show we were watching. And then I get my computer out and I start like extending on the ideas that I'd had while I was, you know, while I was uh, not working, right? Because the, the stuff is always happening in the back of my head. And so I'll pick up where I left off and incorporate any new ideas I've had since then. Um, it's Yeah, so it's an exciting thing to work on the stuff I'm working on. It's not, it's, but, but if you're not stoked about the stuff that you're having to create mocks for, then yeah, I can understand how that would be hard to follow through on. But has it ever been tempting or have you been given the option to make that choice to choose one or the other? Yeah, I totally could. I think we talked about this last episode uh, recently, at least like I, I just fucking love making mocks. I feel like we've talked about it in some level several times, but I don't know that I've ever heard you say if you've been given that choice. Yeah, that's the expected choice is at some point you you pick a path. It's rare to that somebody would want to stay, you know, keep one <laughs> foot in both, in both doors. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's part of why it's rare is because it's just it's extra work. Like if I were only managing people and only kind of making product decisions without having to do any of, like get my hands dirty and do any of the work. Uh, work with air quotes because it's all it's all work but <laughs> yeah the management stuff is just as hard as the the ic stuff but yeah if i were just to do that like my life would be a lot simpler i could probably turn my brain off a lot sooner in the day and but i would also probably be in a lot more meetings and i would probably have to do a lot more email correspondence luckily because i do ic work and because i'm a manager i get to see a lot of people and ask them questions and meetings are just like walking around the office. I, I have the opportunity to like have those ad hoc conversations and get things figured out without having to go through a whole lot of formality of like, I'm going to send an email and wait for a response. I can just walk over to the desk, you know? Well, here here's another level of this is you say you want to always be doing the mocks. You really enjoy the mocks. But at the same time, you also pick up all these side projects and you do all these fun redesigns of, of <laughs> things that you want to be so redesigned. Stupid. So you're satisfying that on your own personal time as well. Yeah. Would that be enough for you to take the management track at work and then just rely on personal time for the, the pixel satisfaction? <laughs> um. Probably not. Hmm. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, plus, it's fun. I fucking love working, <laughs> pushing boxes and text around. Like, that's uh, like the math is cathartic to me. Like, counting up fours and eights and sixteens, like, that's that's my fucking jam. <laughs> so, I don't know. Do that math all day. Yeah. Yeah. I like getting my hands dirty. Can we talk a little bit about the aspect of this question, which is how do you maintain having a wide impact in an organization while doing both of these? And I guess for in my head, like I'm picturing you continue to take on more and more responsibility. The scope of problems becomes more and more ambiguous over time. I feel like those kinds of problems would take up more and more time on the product and management side 
that you would almost be forced to delegate the pixel work more and more? Like, is yeah. what you're doing now in conflict with the long-term career progression that you're on? Like, will you have Ooh. to choose? Wow. That's a really good question. I think, I think the answer is maybe yes, eventually. Like, I don't know if I could be a director level, like a, like a L9, right. And, and, and still mocks. be making mocks. <laughs> yeah. It's just not done, Brian. Um, <laughs> Time to challenge the status quo, Marshall. You can but yeah, that's the thing is like, it hasn't been done. That doesn't mean it can't be done. Right. Like I, I think I would go insane if I didn't push boxes and text around and, you know, I guess I could do side projects, but there's something about having that direct impact on the work for the company that you're working for that's just really satisfying. But to go back to your original point about a question about like taking on more responsibility and all that, like, I mean, you just got to make room for it kind of. And it's really, it's really taxing, right? Like I'm tired a lot and I don't sleep a lot, but that's offset by the kind of sense of accomplishment I get from the things that I do pour all this effort into uh, when they do launch or when I do get positive feedback about them. So for example, I expanded my reach by, um, I went down to Mountain View to teach a bunch of non-designers how to use Sketch so they could, just at a very basic level, like using a sticker sheet to snap together different components so they could create their own mocks without having to go to a designer to you know take their time away to have them do their own little pet project. They can put these things together and create their own ideas simply. They just needed, they had the, the hurdle of not knowing Sketch. So I went down there and taught them the basis basics of sketch or like a four hour class. And it was super rewarding for all of us, I think, certainly for me. And, you know, I took a, it took time out of my day. I, t I took a whole day to drive down there and teach them all that stuff. But uh, it was so rewarding. They got a ton out of it. I improved the company marginally, right? Like now there are more people who can do more. They've increased their skills. It really didn't take a ton of time for me to do. I put together a little deck and, you know, thought about what I wanted to say and, and gave them answers to all their very good questions. But that's a really good example of like doing little things to, you know, increase the quality of the company and the, and the people there and spread my knowledge that didn't take a ton of effort from me, but, uh, you know, had a, had a bigger impact than the effort I put into it. Anyways, but there's a lot of things like that that I've tried to incorporate, especially in my trying to build my career and make a case for myself in the next performance cycle is like, um, you know, constantly trying to think of and execute on these ideas of ways to, you know, just incrementally increase my value at the company. And if you take it all in as a whole, you know, I think it's, you know, a reasonable amount of effort and impact, but individually, like each thing was just an extension of stuff I was already doing. So it didn't feel like a huge reach out outside of my existing skill set. I don't know if yeah. I'm making sense anymore, Brian. You are. And I actually want to take this idea and get into sort of this philosophical conversation we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, which is you're already doing this work that requires you to know sketch and how to navigate it and how to answer these people's questions that have questions about how do you sketch. It seems like the next logical progression of what you did by driving down and teaching it in person would be to write it down and distribute it in a way that can be consumed without any direct impact on your time, you know, once it's published. Yeah. Why don't you just do that? Or is that something that you've thought about uh, doing internally or even perhaps more importantly, externally? Yeah. So this is exactly something I did. So I told you I made a little deck 
part of that was not only to be a visual tool as I walked them through kind of the anatomy of the interface and what each part does and what it what, what it signifies and you know how, how it can be used and why it's important for them, but uh, also as an artifact. So afterwards, they can you know look back on that deck and be like, oh yeah, that's what a symbol is. I remember now. Or oh yeah, okay, pages have this limitation. So yeah, partly to create an artifact for them after the fact and also as a kind of a groundwork to lay any future classes on, which I, I do want to do now. I'm like, oh, I, I kind of want to you know do a little tour around Google and teach people how to use Sketch or, or build this deck out and present it to my own team so that like all of my engineers have a, a more thorough understanding of like design principles and like how I do my job, which I think will make everybody's lives better. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do that, but uh, that's something I'm kind of excited about doing now. But one thing I noticed from this class is like the, the deck that I made they asked a bunch of really great questions while I was presenting it. So what I thought would be about a 15-minute presentation turned into about an hour and a half because they kept interrupting in a good way with like these really great questions that are very specific to what they wanted to, to use Sketch for themselves, what they wanted to get out of the class. And I think that would be true of any other type of group that I would present this to. I kind of need to be there in person to solve their very specific problems. And, you know, there are several times where I had to go look over somebody's shoulder and figure out a problem like, oh, yeah, all your layers disappeared because you typed something into the search field at the bottom of the layer list, right? Like, that that's a thing to be aware of. Now you know that problem, but that would have been really hard to diagnose if I wasn't looking at your screen over your shoulder, right? So hmm. I think having, being in person and, you know, I like people for the most part, and <laughs> I don't mind public speaking. Yeah. I don't mind if it's something I know what I'm talking about. I don't mind being the center of attention in a room. Usually I do, but if it's if I'm talking about something I'm comfortable and and knowledgeable about, then like I'm I'm totally cool with that. So it's not a it's not a negative for me to to show up there and and spend a few hours, you know, every once in a while to teach people. The ROI is good. I selfishly want access to them, some of that stuff. So ignoring Google PR and comms limitations, let's assume that you could publish this stuff that you're learning and the questions that people are asking and your answers to those questions. Is that something that you would be able to do or would want to do externally? Uh, maybe eventually. I'd probably want to like hone it internally until I got it good enough to show to the outside world. That's part of my that's part of my problem. <laughs> I'm I'm too much of a perfectionist to like ever show anybody anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of. Yeah. This is why this is why I do all these like unsolicited redesigns and you're the only person I send it to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's enough, Brian. It's enough. <laughs> as long as you get the satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. One person saw it and gave me good feedback. That's plenty. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at here, Marshall, I, I feel like I have to keep prodding. I, I want to know why you don't write more in public. I mean, I know you're doing this podcast, which is your way of, you know, sharing ideas that you have and talking about what you're working on. Yeah, is this not enough for you, Brian? Jesus. But have you thought of doing it in a more asynchronous way or a way that is perhaps a little bit more timeless than the podcast is? So when I... First started trying to get into the you know design app design industry, I, I wrote a lot right like I or I <laughs> it's embarrassing to look back on or think back on but like I, I posted a lot to Twitter and I like reached out and and I post a lot on Dribble and put a lot of really bad work out there <laughs> into the public 
and acted like I knew what I was talking about. And I did think I knew what I was talking about at the time. And then as I got older and grew in my abilities, I came to the conclusion that like, oh, I don't know shit. I don't know shit for anything. (laughs) And I know more now than I knew then. I also know more now how little I knew then. It's the whole, what is that, Plato or Socrates or some shit? I don't know. Uh, The more I know, the more I know I don't know. Dunning-Kruger, right? And so I, I think as I've gotten older, not only do I chase the thumbs up dragon less I I feel I get less dopamine and I I have less of a a motivation to get fake internet points but also like I don't want to put information out into the world especially if it's going to be looked at by people who are not as far along in the career as I am and I don't want to be wrong and have them read that and then assume that you know somebody who's farther along knows what they're talking about and maybe I fucking don't I don't know uh, so it's like partly self-preservation of like, you know, maintaining plausible deniability. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I probably I probably should. But again, I'm also like very much a perfectionist. I don't, I don't know if I'd ever like, it's really hard for me to get to the point of hitting the submit button. You know what I mean? Like I shared, I, I, I created some like custom Apollo icons and you're like, post them on Reddit. Share them. Yes. Like share them, like hit them up on Twitter, like share these. And I've had a Reddit post drafted and I just have never hit submit on it because like... Oh my God, Marshall. I, I don't know. Dude, I don't the icons know. are good. Just post them. I'm, I'm going to have to you now. You should do it now on air. Yeah. I want to hear the click. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. I need to read my draft again. But yeah, I, I'm too much of... Like I'm, I'm a negative perfectionist. It's, it's like detrimental sometimes. I wish I wrote more but i find myself experiencing something similar to you which is i wrote a lot more when i was earlier on and i wrote as i was learning things and now i realize that everything i write is probably wrong and so i don't want to publish anything but i think there's there's something not good about that attitude there's something that is selfish and protectionist and defensive and it's not giving back to the community out of fear And I get why you don't want to be wrong, but at the same time, it's not giving the community an opportunity to have those conversations and try and understand if you're right or wrong faster, basically. Like, could you learn that you're wrong faster by publishing an idea? And if you could, it seems like that would be advantageous, although more painful. (sighs) I'd rather not be wrong publicly and avoid it. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm wrong all the time. I'm just wrong privately. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel that same fear with the podcast? Um, I did initially. I, well, I guess I still do. I'm just more careful. I try to be more careful about what I say on here, which isn't necessarily untrue of, of writing a blog post. I don't know. I just feel like it's way more official and it lives longer, even though that's not necessarily true. I don't know. I, I feel like it's a more formal thing of like, I wrote this in black and white on a medium post and look, it's everything is like laid out really nicely and this is the source of truth and maybe it's not and I don't want to mislead anyone or or be publicly wrong if I can avoid it. So, and maybe this is the coward's way out of just never posting and it can't be wrong if you never say shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Talk less, smile more, right? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, and or so here's another aspect of it is like if I started, I would feel the need to keep it up and continue writing things, right? Like 
if I just did like a one-off post, that seems like a weird thing to do. I don't know. It's like, oh, you're you're not exactly a, a font of knowledge. You had one thing to say and you said it and that was it, right? So like, I feel like I would probably get myself, well, I know that I would get myself into a mode of either being stressed out to maintain a deadline or feeling guilty for failing to maintain that deadline at all times, right? And I don't want, I don't need any extra undue stress in my life. I think that's fair. Although I think that that is probably the reason that we see fewer and fewer more senior people sharing stuff over time. And it makes total sense, right? Like people take on more responsibility at work. They have families. They maybe become a little bit less attached to their day job or they prioritize other things in their evenings and weekends. And writing shit about design isn't as important to them. And I get it. I guess I just selfishly wish that there was more of it from the people who are most knowledgeable in the areas where I want to learn. But it just doesn't happen that much. Not to say it doesn't happen at all, just not as much. Yeah. Here's two more aspects to it. One, I don't I don't have a whole lot to say, or I don't really know that I, you wouldn't know that from listening to this podcast because I fucking talk your ear off every, every week. But I, I feel like I don't necessarily have a lot to say unless a question is asked of me and then I can talk forever. Yeah. Because yeah. that's just me. But like just writing something out of the blue as a blog post, I feel like that's a lot harder of a, of a thing to take on. So that's one thing. So what, well, I can address that because okay. specifically when you said, oh, I went and taught this class for how non-designers can use sketch to prototype ideas. That's a question, right? Like somebody had the question, they asked it to you and you came up with a deck to present it. That's a blog post right there, right? And I actually had something similar happen this week with an engineer. An engineer said, how do I use Figma? Like that's a blog post, you know, like those are the day-to-day innocuous questions that... But hasn't somebody already written that blog post a thousand times? Yeah, but maybe they wrote it last year and the tools changed. Maybe, I mean, just because one person at some point said something doesn't mean that the idea can't be remixed or your own voice doesn't add value to it. Yeah. Okay, so what's the second point? Uh, The second thing is, okay, so if you don't know, I'm going to use a metaphor as is my want. Uh, If you don't know how high the mountain peak is, when you're standing at the top of a foothill, it seems like you're pretty high up, right? But once you actually get halfway up the mountain and you realize like, oh man, it took so much effort to get halfway up and I'm only fucking halfway up. Look at the people who are actually at the top of the mountain. They have so much more under their belt than I do. There's some fear there of like, I'm going to say some shit. I mean, I guess this goes back to my original point, but like, I'm going to say some shit and the people who actually know what the fuck they're talking about, those mountaintop people, like they're going to look down on me and go, wow, that was a dumb thing to say. Right? <laughs> and then I may run into those people again in my career and be like, hey, oh, oh, Marshall. Yeah, I remember you wrote that dumb thing that one time. Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I like, again, I, I know how much I don't know now and I'm, I'm hesitant to pretend I know anything. Hmm. Sounds like partially the solution here is you need a less formal way. Like it sounds like you're concerned about your audience. Which is this, which is like two buddies talking, right? And I caveat, like I think anybody who listens to this podcast hopefully knows like this is my personal opinion. This is like, this isn't my employer talking. This isn't anybody else. I'm not like espousing anybody else's beliefs. This is just me talking to my buddy about stuff and people just happen to be listening in. Right, right. right. So you kind of want a format like that which the podcast does. I'm just trying to think there's a written way. But then the second is you want inbound questions where you would feel comfortable answering only if you have expertise. 
and you can ignore the questions. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a point here, like we get lots of inbound questions to this podcast that we intentionally don't answer because you and I know that we can't answer it. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah. that would happen for your writing as well. Like you're already doing a good job there. But I guess what I'm suggesting is there is a lot that you do know. And, you know, even reflectively, there's probably stuff that I know that would be worth writing about that we're a little bit self-conscious of publishing oh yeah yeah this gets into the whole fear of writing and oh and, totally yeah 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 we're, we're yeah this is like, this is a scary subject to even talk about because this is like very you know personal fears subject right the thing though is it's such a massive reward if you do it well because it's consumed without any additional input of your time and that's so valuable like imagine if you could teach that class that you taught 10,000 more times without spending another minute on it, like that is leverage and that's really, really useful. So seeking that, but yeah, hard to get it right. Lots of downside risk. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything about me that is true, it is I am a risk averse, Brian. <laughs> hmm. you, I think you're probably aware of that. Yeah, I am. I just, I'll chip away at that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I got you on Maybe the podcast. I got you on the podcast, Marshall. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to twist my arm to talk. That's easy. That's true. Well, speaking of which, should we get into cool things? Do you want to go first? Because I'm going to talk a long time. I got I got a whole thing. Sure, sure. I have one. It's going to continue the the theme of this episode, which is putting pressure on Marshall to do things that he thinks that he knows he should do, but he has not done yet. <laughs> You're familiar with the YouTube channel, which you told me about, called Nando V Movies. I sure am. Have you watched Nando's most recent video? I sure have. Actually, I saw it early because I'm a Patreon supporter. Hey, I became a Patreon supporter as well. Yeah, so yeah, you could just watch it a day early. So my cool thing this week is Nando's latest movie. So for those who aren't aware of Nando V Movies, Nando takes a film, decides that there is maybe one thing that could be changed that would make it considerably better, and describes how he would implement that change and, and the impact that it would have on a film. And he's done this for... Tons of movies, but notably, he's done it for a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. Uh, my favorite ones are, you know, the Endgame one and the Infinity War ones. I think he did two for that. Uh, anyways, his most recent video was a little bit different. So instead of taking an existing film and critiquing one small change, he made a film pitch. So he pitched how he wanted Ant-Man and the Wasp Part 2 to be. Mm -hmm. The third movie in the Ant-Man series. The third movie in the Ant-Man series. And so... The delivery of this video was so fun to watch. It was addicting. I, I mean, I need to find more YouTube content like this, which is people who know what they're talking about drafting artboards for film. So for people who are interested in Marvel Cinematic Universe, who have watched Nando and love it, this next video is is great for people who are interested in like film essays and have gotten into this alongside me because this is my latest YouTube hobby. This was just so fun. It's really good learning for me to watch how this pitch happened. And it, I don't know if this is his first pitch or, or how good this really is, but it was incredibly entertaining and engaging. It's his first OC pitch as far as I'm aware, yeah. And I came away from it like, I hope they make this film. That would be so fun. Yeah. He taught me things about the, the comic books that I didn't know. He made me think about character development and story in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I hadn't thought about. Like the fact that Ant-Man, the series, is comic relief for the series and what that means post-Endgame. Like what niche should this series fill post-Endgame? Mm -hmm. There's always like the, the fun heist movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyways, that, that that's the cool thing. Just go watch this video if you're into this kind of stuff. Yeah. 
It's a good one. But then Marshall, can I call you out? Because you, you've been working on a screenplay. Do you want to talk about I this? Have. Uh, do you want to say what the screenplay is? Yeah. Oh, God. Give me a, a high level because here's what I, here's my ultimate goal is for someday a video like this or, or a blog post or whatever to be about your screenplay. I think that'd be so fun for to see you pitch your idea. And I don't even know that much about your idea. I know that. Yeah, I was going to say, have I even told you about it? I, know. I know it's about time travel. Yeah, that's my that's my jam. That's about it. So if you want to talk about it, I'd love to know more unless you're, you want to keep it. Uh, I can, yeah, I'll play ball, fine. So... Well, first off, I would say like I every time I watch a Nando video, I'm like I I need to like reach out to him. I need to get my screenplay further along and then reach out to him and see if he'll collaborate with me cuz I I think he could help me a lot. He he seems to know a lot more than I do. <laughs> and he seems like a cool guy. I'd love to collaborate with the guy. Okay, what's my movie about? It's a time travel movie. So some backstory. So usually time travel movies, the way they work is uh, when you go back in time, either you affect your same future. There's only one timeline, but when you go back and then you come back to the future, just like the movie Back to the Future, the future is changed based on the things you did in the past. Or you create a separate timeline and it splits off. Anyways, these are kind of the established ways for doing time travel. There's one more that is very, very rare that is my favorite, which is how it would actually be which is when you time travel and you change stuff in the past, it doesn't actually change anything because you always did that. There is only one timeline. And when you go back in time, you had always gone back in time, right? Yeah, which is a mental knot to untie, like when you start thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, lots of brain gymnastics to make that happen, which is partly why it's taking so long for me to write the screenplay. But yeah, so that that's kind of the, the model that I'm working with is uh, whatever happened, happened. This is kind of the lost model, right? Whatever happened, happened. So uh, part of that is to create a bunch of situations similar to Back to the Future or kind of like Endgame where you are a future version of a character revisiting a scene from a past version of the same character and seeing that scene from a different light, knowing what you know now and seeing it from this new angle, right? And, and like a whole movie made up of those things, the story grows as the the character encounters the same situation from different angles. The loose premise I'm working with now is our main character, kind of like the beginning of, okay, so I guess the beginning of the movie is a combination of Ex Machina and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> and Charlie okay. and the Chocolate Factory, which is basically, he wins a contest to beta test this new Technology from an Apple type company playing with the name Omni, but basically they they are it's it's in the future, not too far the the near future, but they are the monolithic company that makes devices that everybody uses. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And our main character wins a lottery to field test this uh, new project that they're working on to go to the campus to see the the chocolate factory and go inside. And so then that kind of turns into a little bit of the scene from Jurassic Park where they're going on the little the ride with the Mr. DNA or whatever. And the gates open. and yeah, Well, not the oh, oh, gates. No, I see, I see. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. whole like, here's how, and and that's our, like, here's how time travel works. Thing. Right. And so we that's when we find out like, holy shit, this thing is a time travel machine. We're going to get to beta test this time travel machine. I'm not exactly sure, but something goes wrong, and um, I'm not sure how, but something goes wrong, and our main character, instead of doing the little test 
that everybody else that that won on his little group went through. I think maybe they like get sent back a minute or something like that. But something goes wrong and he gets sent back a full day and gets so the whole rest of the movie is him being stuck in this one day loop where he gets to the end of the day and w- without his control he gets zapped back to the beginning of that 24 hours and he kind of relives the same day over and over and over again learning more about trying to uncover like how this happened and how to undo it. So that's the that's the premise of the movie. Okay. So Ex Machina meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory meets Groundhog Day. Meets Jurassic Park. Meets Jurassic Park. <laughs> what are your other favorite series? Where's Star Wars in this? Where meets Back to the Future. Meets Back to right? the Future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And I think there's kind of, and I want it to be that fun mood of Back to the Future, right? I, I want that to be the the tone, right? It's not okay. a serious, grim, dark thing. I think the main character is like, maybe not a high schooler like Marty McFly, but, you know, a younger character that, you know, is emotive throughout the entire thing and, and doesn't know everything. So like there's, there mistakes will be made, et cetera. Do you have an actor in mind? My... I was actually kind of thinking like Tom Holland. Dude, I was thinking Tom Holland. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only young actor I know right now, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I really like, I mean, he has a great sense of humor. Like, yeah. I want it to be funny, but I want it to kind of be like a Spider-Man movie where it's like there are intense action scenes, and I want to have like a chase scene. You know, I think that could be really interesting to have a chase scene where at the end, um, he gets zapped back, right? So like he's in the middle of a chase and then all of a sudden he's like sitting on the highway because <laughs> like, yeah. he gets zapped back, but the car around him doesn't, you yeah. know? Anyways, and I think there's a lot of interesting ideas that could come out of that and like crazy situations that could get the character into that I have to get them out of. Like what happens if he gets arrested, right? Like what happens oh. if he ends up in jail? Right. And then the, the end point happens where he has to flash back, but now you he, he, he flash back in the same location, just backwards in time. Right. So if you're in jail at the end of the 24 hours, now you're in jail at the beginning of the 24 hours, but you were never put in jail to be in jail. You know what I mean? Like you just suddenly appear there. Like, how do you talk your way out of jail or how like, how do you get out of jail? <laughs> I'm here on by accident. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like uh, Live, Die, Repeat as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, you could basically name every time travel movie, but <laughs> it's basically like all these other times. Yeah, yeah, ah, the, that's I love kind it. of the loose premise that I'm working with. Okay. Like those are the at least like the tent poles that I want to have happen. It's like stuck in a 24 hour time loop. Whatever happened, happened, and and the goal of the movie is to figure out how how he got stuck in this loop and how to get out of it. And I think the answer is well and I, I think part of the reveal will be at the end of the loop there is there is a bad thing that happens something that seems like it's like not the end of the world but like it is a non-desirable outcome that happens at the end of every single loop and we don't know what happens because he gets flashback every time but it seems like this is a really bad thing that's going to happen and by the end of the movie there's a perspective shift where we realize that the thing that was bad that was happening was actually caused by him and it's a good thing that should happen right that he's been fighting against this entire time while a future version of him was trying to make it happen. does this make sense oh my god yeah 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 oh so you have like multiple cascading consequences of the actions that happen on each loop yep yep oh boy but the problem here is like trying to overcome the thing of like well if it always happened 
where's the the stakes, right? Like, if you can't change anything, like, why even fucking try? Which I think might be an interesting, like, you know, uh, Dark Knight of the Soul point of, like, him basically just giving up being like, I can't change anything. Everything is just going to happen regardless of whether I try to or not. And And potentially the bad thing that happens is, like, he sees a future version of himself die, right? And that's kind of what I'm playing with right now is, like, he sees himself, like, fall to his death or whatever. But later we realize that, like, no, his vision was obscured and he didn't actually die. We just, you know, it, we just made the assumption or something like that. You okay. know what I mean? Okay. But yeah, the problem is, is like, how do you, if you know it's inevitable, like, where, what are the stakes? And how, why, do, why do you even bother trying to try to change it if it's, if it's going to happen regardless? So uh, I've kind of built in these problems. And this is really not a good idea to do for a first screenplay to write. <laughs> it's something that's complicated. But I figured I'd throw myself in the deep end. And it's something that I want to write and I've always wanted to write for a long time. So, yeah. Are, are you happy you asked me this question and I, I just talked for 20 minutes? so happy that I asked you. I'll buy the first ticket. Nobody write this movie before I do, please. <laughs> dibs, dibs, dibs. Uh, yeah, dibs, TM, dibs, TM, TM. Copyright 2019. IP, Marshall Buck 2019. <laughs> well, thank you for indulging me. Mm-hmm. I have wanted to know more. And I hope that you'll continue to, at this point now, give us progress updates as you make... I know it's going to be a long time. This is like a a life a life project, maybe. But uh, yeah, as you make progress, I want to know about it. So thank you. Well, I've been I've been thinking about it for a few years now, and and I'm at the point of having index cards on a cork board. So I've made some progress. There you go. Yeah, cool. All right, Marshall, you can do your cool things to me now. Oh, I'm gonna talk more now. Jesus. All right. Um. <laughs> okay. So my cool thing is Brian. Have you ever heard of a little TV show called Survivor? I have heard of it. It's a little television program created by, uh, I believe, CBS. Do you want to know if I've ever seen it? <laughs> have you ever watched an episode, Brian? <laughs> Not a single one. Really? Haven't even seen like snippets or anything. Uh, I mean, maybe like gifs and stuff on you or on Twitter, but no, I've never watched an episode. Okay. All right. I'm I'm going to pitch you on why you should watch Survivor and why it's one of the best shows ever made. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. This is to you, listener, as well. If you're not watching Survivor, I'm going to try and change your mind. Here we go. Okay, Survivor has been around for, I think, 19 years at this point, which is fucking crazy. It was, it was one of the first reality TV shows when the first you know when that huge spate of, of reality tv shows took over television and it has survived and it survived for a reason it has longevity because it is a fucking amazing show allow me to enumerate yes the basic premise of the show is a bunch of people get sent to some deserted area where they're forced to participate in challenges and take the risk of being voted out every few days. So the the cadence is like every three days, there's a tribal council, what they call it, where the losing team will go to talk with Jeff around a fire and they, they write names down and whoever has the most votes goes home, basically. It starts off with uh, usually somewhere around 20 people, 16 to 20 people. Those are usually split up into two groups. And the first half of the show is the two competing tribes competing against each other in these challenges. Usually there's two challenges per three-day period, one for reward and one for immunity. The tribe that wins immunity doesn't have to go to the tribal council, and the tribe that loses has to go and vote somebody out so the weak get weaker, etc., in addition to the structure, there there are some wild cards. So in addition to the winning the immunity challenge, there are hidden immunity idols that are available around the island if only you are to look for them. Mm. You can find them, keep them hidden, and then use them at tribal council after 
the votes have been read, or sorry, after the votes have been cast, but before they've been read, if you think you are in danger or you think someone that you're aligned with is in, in danger, you can play this idol and that person, that any votes cast for them don't count, right? Okay. So you can sway votes pretty heavily. If, if somebody's like, we hate this person, we're going to vote them out, and they find an idol um, and everybody votes for that one person, all of those votes don't count, and whoever they vote for is the one who goes home because they played their idol, right? Oh, wow. Okay. And so that's kind of the basic skeleton is like challenges, some rewards, some immunity, tribal council with these hidden immunity idols kind of putting some uncertainty into the, into the fray. The cool thing about the show is that that basic structure has stayed the same, but the specifics of it change every season. And people watch the show are diehards. Like people, I, I've basically been watching it since the beginning. The episodes that I missed when they were happening on TV, I've gone back and watched them on Hulu. The first 34 seasons are available on Hulu, by the way. They do two seasons a year. So that's how they got to 38 with only 19 years. But because they change it every year and because they're hardcore fans, you start to learn patterns and stuff like that. But you can't be sure that the things that have worked in the past will necessarily work on the season that you get to play the show, right? Because they might have changed the rules or they might have added a new twist that negates your strategy. But overall, the show is, has a, a tagline, which is outwit, outplay, and outlast. So you have to be smarter than people. You have to like, you know, outstrategize them, outwit. You have to win challenges in order to make it to the end. You have to outplay and you have to not get voted out. <laughs> you know, you have to outlast. Oh, and uh, sorry, I, I'm kind of all over the place. So I said those two tribes start off early in the show. The first half of the show is these two tribes whittling each other down through winning and losing and voting people out. Eventually what happens is there is called the merge where both the tribes go away and it's just a single tribe and now you're fighting for individual immunity as opposed to tribal immunity. Uh, okay. So then it becomes an individual game and the challenges that they do are so interesting. Like some of them, there's a wide variety. Some of them are puzzles. Some of them are, are dexterity. Some of them are endurance. Some of them are strength. Some of them are uh, rely on your ability to do multiple of those things in the same challenge. Like you have to go through an, this obstacle course or like run a rope through a crazy obstacle course and then untie some knots and get the puzzle pieces out and put them in the puzzle thing. And then that unlocks a thing that allows you to shoot baskets into a hoop and the first person <laughs> Race of, you know, like, yeah, 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 sure. So it's not, it's not just a thing like, oh, I'm good at puzzles and this is a physical challenge. I'm fucked. Like, usually there's multiple aspects. Like, you have to go through a physical thing to get to a mental thing or vice versa. So, it, like, at any given point, unless you're a really bad contestant, unless you're a really bad survivor, then you're going to um, have a chance of winning. It's a, it's a pretty meritocratic game. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter if you're good at the challenges, if you can do the outwit thing, if you have a strong alliance that you are sure in and you don't, you know, stab each other in the back with the right combination of a few people, you can basically manipulate yourselves into a place of power just through solidarity, right? So there's all these different aspects that go on and, and they do little side confessionals. So this is a classic you know, reality TV thing where they look on the side and you know, talk on the side with the camera guy and basically explain what they're thinking, which gives you a really good insight. And, and they'll, they'll edit these things between like active conversations that are happening with this person with other people and then their little confessional thing on the side saying like, here's what I'm really thinking, you know, and they'll cut back and forth so you can see their thought process and see how these plans play out. But a lot of times the editors will withhold the result of those manipulations until tribal council. So like you'll see all of the, the dirty work that happens, but you don't know how people, whether people were swayed by 
by conversations that they had or anything like that. So you go to tribal and you're like, I don't know who's going to get voted out. And then even at tribal, this is the crazy thing. In the last several seasons, there's kind of organically started to become more conversations that happen at tribal. Historically, what happened is like everybody does all of their scrambling to get into a position of power before tribal. And then you come to tribal and everybody answers Jeff's questions. He'll like ask them, you know, what's going on and and, you know, so-and-so did this and how did that affect everything? And they'll talk, but they'll t- kind of talk in vague, you know, platitudes and say stuff that doesn't really say exactly how they're planning to vote. And then they'll just go and vote and then it's over. In the latest seasons, they've there's a lot of conversation. So people will come in and they think one thing is one way. And then these little side whisper conversations will start. And eventually the whole tribal will break up where people have like segregated themselves into these little talkie circles and they're going back and forth and, and decisions are being made at tribal, which is really, really fucking interesting because then you really don't know what's going to happen. But ultimately... It gets whittled down to three people. Those three people go before a jury of their peers, which is the last like 10 or so people who were voted out. Instead of going home, they go on to the jury and they sit and watch every single tribal after they get voted out. So they, so they see all of the struggles that are going on and hear all the people talking and see who gets voted out and added to their numbers. And at the very end, these three people make their, their best case of why they should win. And then the jury asks them questions and ultimately they vote. And this time, instead of for voting people out, they're voting for the person to win. Then they have a live show at the very end where they read the votes and everybody's cleaned up. They've shaven and, you know, have makeup on and everything. And they've done their hair and they look like normal humans again instead of like people who've been beat up by the by this uh, tropical island or whatever for 39 days. So it's cool to see that transition. And then they read the votes live on the show and kind of do a, you know, like a reunion show where everybody kind of talks having some distance from the actual uh, season. They can talk about their, their history, knowing that everything has played out the way it has played out. It's, uh, have I sold you yet? <laughs> I just keep talking. Okay, so here, here's where I'm not sold is this is a lot of content. So there's 38 seasons. I've never seen anything. What's uh, And given that I have limited time, like let's say I wanted to just watch two episodes to see if I'm into it and want to continue continue on. Where should I start? So I'm tempted to to recommend a season based on personalities rather than like the number of the season. Unfortunately, there's so many... So one of the things they do is they bring back characters. They, or I call them characters, but they bring back people from previous <laughs> seasons. Yes. Well, they're kind of characters. So people will kind of, as you're watching the season, part of this is the personalities of the people. Part of this is the editors doing their editing job and the producers, you know, choosing to give someone a good or a bad edit. But people will kind of fall into either like a hero or a villain. And there are certainly villains on the show who are like, lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to win, right? And yep. and historically, sometimes those people win. Sometimes the altruistic do-gooder wins, right? There's no set path to, to success on the show. But uh, because of that, sometimes they bring back old characters, old, sorry, old contestants to, to try again, right? Like, or if they won, bring them back, see if they can do it again. So you have these people who are mixed in with newbies who've never played the show before. And there are these veterans who come in who've already done it and know kind of some of the ins and outs and the mistakes they've made. And they have some revenge to have, like they, they didn't win before, like, I'm not going to let this happen again, which makes it really interesting. But I wouldn't want to give you one of those seasons because you wouldn't know the characters. But those are usually the most interesting because the, there's added dynamics of like, you know, the veterans versus the noobs. 
So I would probably recommend for you season four to start with. They've worked out some of the kinks of the first two seasons. I don't think the first, well, the first season is iconic because there's a character, uh, there's a guy on there who, uh, I keep wanting to say character. Uh, there's a guy on there who's like, chooses to be a nudist just to fuck with people. <laughs> Okay. Which makes things really interesting because there's a whole social dynamic, obviously, to this thing. But season four, they've worked out a lot of the kinks. And there's the introduction of a person named Boston Rob, who's a really interesting character. He, he ended up writing a book. He literally wrote the book on how to play Survivor. And that's a, I think that'd be a good season to start in. But potentially you could start on the latest one if you wanted to. The problem there is there's all this like institutional knowledge of like the way that things have worked in the past and understanding that the way they work right now is a twist, right? This is not how it's been done before and there, there's not a guaranteed outcome to how this could play out the surprises will not be surprising to me because exactly it will be novel yeah yeah but season four is how i would start okay yeah let me put this on my to-do list and i'll report back next week and listener did i did i uh <laughs> change your mind have you not watched it before but now you're kind of intrigued hopefully i did my job it's one of my favorite shows of all time especially now with like hulu like you don't have to wait week to week you can just see what happens just watch them they're very bingeable shows instant gratification i love it because the way each episode ends is like they walk away from tribal and the way every episode begins is like that night they come back from tribal and all the fallout from from what happened during the vote right right so there's nice continuity yeah yeah so as soon as you start the episode you're like right into it it's so good cool all right, I'll check it out. I will say this. I have not historically been a fan of reality TV because it is very addicting. Like it pokes all those things that are fun and addicting and make me want to just binge it. So I have to be very careful here. Well, that's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of me recommending this is that it's such a bingeable, uh, addicting show. Yeah. Well, I'm just making sure that your expectations are set as far as my involvement, but I, I will check it out but perhaps have to set restrictions because 38 seasons. I expect very little of you, Brian. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's in general. Just in general. <laughs> uh, well, let's wrap up. That's a cool, cool things all around, all around Marshall. I'll let you know what I thought. Listeners, let us know if you have watched survivor, if you are going to try watching survivor with me, or if you uh, disagree with Marshall for any reason, I want to hear about that. Bryn, for one, hates Survivor. So I know. Oh, Bryn does? Yeah. Okay, cool. I've tried to convert him before and it didn't work. Okay, so Team Bryn, uh, Team Marshall, and Noob Team Brian. Pick your side. Fence Sitter Brian. Yeah. Let us know what you think. We're on Twitter, at Design Details FM. We hope you enjoyed this episode, Survivor or otherwise. We'd love to know what you think about management and IC work, work-life balance, and writing these are all screenplay yes and <laughs> feedback on marshall's screenplay uh if you've subscribed to nando v movies ugh, there's so many things we honestly need like a mini site there's like a little culture being built up of all these stories like your screenplay will become part of this right it will become uh, sure and infrequently updated thread through the design details universe <laughs> there you go yeah no, but I think we should make a site of all our cool things. That would be fun. Cool things out of him. Yeah. So anyways, keep keep those tweets coming. We love it. And of course, before we go, be sure to check out Abstract, who made this episode possible. Abstract, it's like GitHub, but for designers, it's your team's version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work. It brings design workflow into a single unified place for you and your developers and all the stakeholders in your company to collaborate and keep work moving forward. You can try it for free today at abstract.com. That's a 30-day trial for you and your entire team. 
Go sign up. Check them out at abstract.com. Thank you so much to Abstract. Thanks, Abstract. And thank you so much, of course, to Sarah and Drew, our editors and producers who make this show, among many other shows possible, all on the Spec Network, a network for designers and developers just like you. Visit spec.fm if you want more podcasts in your ears. Go check out Layout if you are wanting more design podcasts. Uh, Rafa and Kevin are great hosts talking about the day-to-day life of designers. And uh, their most recent episode was about job failure or job interview failures listen to rafa recount all the times he failed the job interview oh no okay good content abound at spec.fm so thank you sarah and drew for making this and all the other podcasts possible and uh listener i guess we'll catch you next week thank you so much for for tuning in catch you on the flip side (laughs) catch you on the flippity flop bye